want to encourage you also, in the meantime, grab a Bible. Uh, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 10, or sorry, at verse 11. Yeah, in just a second. Uh, verse 11, on page 928 in your pew-provided Bibles. One of the things that uh, I see on the, the landscape of uh, American Christianity is that we have a way of just really looking for any opportunity for us to prosper, right? We are, we're always looking for that next best job that has the next best perks that will move me to the next best position so that I can have the next best thing. That's kind of one of our American mantras, you know, we're always looking for that next step up on the, on the ladder so that we can be, have the next best thing. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, a piece of historical truth, looking at the seven sons of the priest Eskiva, and uh, looking at a distortion in truth, a distortion. So follow along with me as we read verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to inv invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped, in whom was, the man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they all fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, for the fear upon all of them, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it, found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. This is the word of the Lord. So, no doubt you're aware. It's no doubt many evangelicals claim that today we should be experiencing the kind of signs and wonders that we read about in our text today. Since the early 20th century, the Many Pentecostal groups make claims, but not many of them have taken them seriously. 
But in the late 70s, a man named John Wimber, who has done some great things, and, and the vineyard churches that he started began to claim that miracles should be an ordinary experience within the, within the church. Jesus said that his followers would do great works than he himself did. And Wimber himself asserted that the main reason that we do not see the works of power is because of our skeptical Western mindset. We just don't believe. We just don't believe. So along with Peter Kraft and uh, Charles, Peter Wagner and Charles Kraft, in 1982, Wimber began teaching a, a course at Fuller Theological Seminary called Signs and Wonders. And for a few years, hundreds and hundreds of students took these courses, and it ran for uh, till 1986 when the seminary halted the class and decided it's time to put a task force into place and evaluate the material from a biblical, theological, scientific, and pastoral perspective. Wimmer didn't believe that miracles will take place every time that we pray, but he did teach that they were necessary manifestations of the kingdom's presence and the kingdom's advance. They were necessary. These things had to happen. If we're not doing miracles along with our preaching, we're not preaching the gospel as we should, according to Wimber. The hope of the miraculous attracts many people, doesn't it? I just want some hope. I just want to be healed. I just want to experience a miracle right here. And it attracts many peoples to see miracles happening because there are many who are afflicted with serious, incurable diseases. We have people in our churches and in our families who we know are suffering from diseases or potentially death. And we're looking for hope. And I pray. Just even this past week, I've sat down with a man who is dying of cancer. He's been given one to two months notice at the most. And I just pray. And I prayed with him, Lord, if it is your will, please remove this cancer from your body. You are the God who spoke the whole creation into existence. You have the capacity. You have the ability to take this cancer from him. And I would rejoice if God miraculously would heal him or heal the family and friends that we have who are in these situations. And sometimes, sometimes God does heal. Doesn't he? We hear these stories of God's miraculous hands and reports coming back from the doctors saying, I have no idea what happened, but it is gone. And we should pray for it if it is God's will. If I thought that there was anyone in town, in our area, in the United States, who had the God-given gift of true miraculous healing, I would send my friends, my family, those who are suffering there, and urge those who are sick to go there whenever he was there so that they might be healed. But I do question both 
that theology and its claims of success in healing in large numbers of those who are seriously sick. As Fuller Seminary noted, not even the apostles did miracles on par with those of Jesus. And they, in a report it says, by any ordinary standard of equivalence, the healings reported by contemporary healing ministries hardly qualify as greater works than Jesus did. Notes here in our text that these miracles going on in Ephesus were extraordinary miracles. Even for the Apostle Paul, these are extraordinary, unheard of. I can't believe this is happening. And they seem to parallel the extraordinary miracles that Peter performed in a brief time period of his ministry. It's significant that apart from Stephen and Philip, who worked closely under the apostles, there were no miracles recorded as performed by anyone other than the apostles. And it seems that all who were brought to them were healed. The purpose of these apostolic miracles, according to Hebrews 2, was to confirm the message of salvation that Jesus is Lord. In fact, throughout the entire Bible, miracles are not just uniformly, neatly, throughout every chapter of Scripture performed as daily, everyday occurrences. Rather, they are clustered at key moments in history, such as the Exodus, where God was working on behalf of his people. And those who lived after are often reminded, often reminded of these former miracles to call them back to God. So in our text, Paul's extraordinary miracles in Ephesus are contrasted with the attempts of some inept Jewish exorcists in their attempt to duplicate miracles. No doubt, can, can you imagine the stories going around in the church after this happened? The whole public was more than likely witnessing these things and the jokes and the stories, you remember the seven sons of Sceva? Yeah, they went in trying to heal that guy and what happened? Naked, stripped, naked, seven men, overpowered by one man, wounded and ran out naked. Naked. By drawing this contrast between Paul and these men, I think Luke wants us to learn an important and vital lesson that many faith healers and their followers need to learn. And this is the theme. Nathan, why don't you throw it up for me? This is our theme for the morning. It'll be up in a minute. We should allow God to use us according to his will for his glory. We should allow God to use us according to his will for his glory, but we should not try to use him for our own purposes. Do you see the contrast between the two? 
We are not here to manipulate God into our own wants, our own needs, our own desires. But ultimately, we, we are to be used and consumed for God's purposes according to his will. Whatever that may be. God is not our vending machine. That we put in our, our quarters of prayer, our works of good service. We'll do whatever you want, God. We'll do whatever you want. Just answer this prayer and pull the bar and hope that God answers our prayer according to our will. No. We should allow God, according to his will and his purposes, use us for his glory. And this summarizes the main difference between Paul and these exorcists. Paul was allowing God to use him according to God's will and for God's glory. He was saying, God, use me. However it is, use me in this circumstance for your glory, for your purposes, whatever it might be. But these spiritual shamans, these fakes, were trying to use God for their own financial profit and those who hired the exorcist were trying to use God's power for their purposes. They had no intention to repent from their sins and submit their lives to God's purpose. They were using God for their own purposes. They wanted to use God as Aladdin's genie. You rub God right. You do the right things. You say the right things. God spits out your wishes and you put them back on the shelf until the next time his services are needed. Even so many, in, even in evangelical circles, tr attempt to use God for health or attempt to use God for wealth or whatever favors they desire. And when God doesn't perform according to our expectations, our hopes, our dreams, they quickly look elsewhere for answers. But in their search for answers to their problems, ultimately Jesus Christ is not Lord. They are their own Lord. They are their own Savior. As seen by quickly turning to the world when Jesus doesn't seem to work as they hoped. The issue here is not whether or not God will bless those who come to him in faith for salvation. That's, that's not the issue that we're, we're dealing with here. The Bible says God delights to pour out his blessings on people. And Paul ex exalts by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's God's desire to bless you with spiritual, hear that? Spiritual blessings. Every spiritual blessing that you need is available to you. Spiritual blessings. So when we come to Christ, he grants all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 Clearly, we receive all the riches of Christ when we come to him for salvation. Everything that we need for life and salvation comes to us. I'm not denying that. But what I am focusing on is who is your Lord? Really? Who is your Lord? On the issue, and on the issue of repentance from our sins. 
If we come to, come to God to use him to see if he works, I'm going to try Jesus on to see if he fits for me. I'm going to see if he works for me. Then we are still the lords of our lives. And we have not turned away from our sins. If God works, use him whenever we need him. But we determine. Do we need a new job or a raise in our current job? Name it and claim it by faith and it is yours. Do you need healing from a disease? Command God and he must obey your word of faith. Just command him. Call him on account. Call him on the carpet. These are your promises, God. So you got to do what I do and say what I say and come through on what I want. Does anything sound off, slightly off there? This is what many in the Word of Faith movement are teaching. One example from a, a prominent teacher said this, and I quote, now this is the real shocker. But God is to be given permission to work in this earth realm on behalf of man. Did you hear that? God has got to be given permission to work in this earth on behalf of man. Yes, he says, you are in control. So if man is in control, who no longer has it? God. When God gave Adam dominion, that means God no longer has dominion. So God cannot do anything in this earth unless we let him. And the way that we let him or give him permission is through prayer. This is the kind of teaching and I will say heresy that puts man at the center Man as Lord and God as manservant. But the Bible, the God of the Bible is a sovereign Lord. He is in control of all things. And according to Daniel 4.35, it says, God does according to his will. According to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And these Jewish exorcists reveal three wrong ways that we are all, all of us are prone to use God for our purposes. All of us are, are guilty at, at times of wanting to use God for our own purposes, aren't we? All of us. The first one is this. You got it up there for me, Nathan? First, first way. We attempt to use God when we use spiritual power for financial gain. These false prophets went around from town to town, place to place, making a living by supposedly casting out demons out of these people who were afflicted. And Luke calls their father Sceva. And according to a uh, uh, historical past, it's, this is fiction. He is not, there was no high priest named Sceva. So it was a name that he put upon himself so that his family can have an impressive clientele and he can impress his clientele. 
These men had a, a bag full of magic spells of rituals, incantations, and oaths, and different things of the like. And you, you would try to gain power over evil by invoking the name of a more powerful spiritual being. And so when they heard about Paul's success, when they heard about what Paul was doing, they added it to their repertoire. They added it to their repertoire. But they found out that it's kind of like using a hand grenade without instructions. It blew up in their face. They had no idea how it, how it really works. And they were glad to get away with at least their lives. The point of this is for them, spiritual power was, was usually an easy way to make a nice living. You come to me, you need some services, you pay a certain amount, and I will take care of that. And God was not called, nor God had not called nor sent them to do this. They were they weren't doing it out of a loving concern for hurting people. They were doing it for financial gain. Financial gain. And the Bible says that elders should, who rule well should be paid for their labors, especially those who labor hard at preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5. And those who work as evangelists and missionaries have the right to be supported in their labors for the gospel. But it is far different for those who today are like prominent TV evangelists and faith leaders of our day who make a fortune peddling their spiritual wares on unsuspecting and weak people, desperate people, some of whom send their appeals for funds to arrive at the same time that elderly people, their security check arrives in the mail. They often travel first class or have their own jet airplane. And they insist on staying at five-star hotels and demand large sums of money for them to even show up. They live in personal luxury and promise their poor audiences that they too can live in luxury if they just had the faith. And of course, give generously to their ministries. They are feeding themselves at the expense of their flock. For financial gain. Misuse God to use spiritual power for financial gain. Secondly, another way that we can misuse God is when we manipulate the scriptures according to whatever works. These exorcists were not submitting to their lives to God's word. In fact, they were in direct disobedience to God's word, which condemned false prophets who who supposedly were speaking in God's name when he had not sent them. Think about Ezekiel 13. Ezekiel 13 says this, They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord had not sent them. And yet, they expect him to fulfill their word. Clearly, they were in the business of using whatever worked. If one spell or incantation didn't work, they'd try another. And if Paul was having the success in the name of Jesus, well, they'd try it out. And, and although the attempt to use Jesus' name didn't seem to work for them this time, 
they must have been trying it and had success at other times or they wouldn't have stayed in business. Either through satanic power or the power suggestion, they saw enough results to stay in business, but they didn't live in submission to God's word. Whenever we use what works without regard to truth of scripture, we fall into pragmatism. John MacArthur and others have so capably noted that pragmatism has so flooded our American churches today. We are using marketing techniques to, to draw crowds to our churches. We'll spend thousands of dollars in flyers and lights and bells and whistles and fog machines. You name it, we've got it. Come check it out. Marketing techniques. We tone down the difficult parts of the gospel and emphasize the, the more feel-good parts. We avoid those difficult pieces of scripture so that we don't scare off potential converts. We avoid those things. We even avoid difficult doctrines. And what do we do? We shorten up our messages that focus on how people can succeed in life. A five-week series on your best marriage or finances or how to succeed in this life. Because that's what people want to hear. We often use psychological counseling will trump or 12-step groups will trump other ministries instead of submission to the Lordship of Christ to help people cope with life's problems because these techniques seem to help. Pa pastors, and I get weekly just tons of mail about come to this conference, come to this conference to share the best and the latest methods. Because these will build your church. These Jewish exorcists probably could have landed on the, a job on the staff of many thriving evangelical churches. Third way. We misuse God when we dabble in the... And I, I'm going to admit this. This is a word that some of us are going... You know what, I have not heard that word. Or I've kind of heard it in the past. This, I remember growing up in the 80s in high school. Some of you weren't even born yet, were you? The 80s? Great music back then, man. The 80s. But I remember that, that was the beginning for me of hearing this word, the occult. And I remember hearing about the occult and specifically the use of Ouija boards of having friends play with this Ouija board. And there was a terrible movie. I don't even remember what it was called. It freaked me out when I saw it. Uh, what was it called? Oh, Jumanji 2. Oh, yeah, that's... This is an older one. You, weren't born in, you were born in the 80s. Which board? <laughs> yeah. Which board? Awful. <laughs> these, these exorcists were involved in the occult. And it's a word that we don't hear much, but the... The, the Christian apologetic and research ministry defines a cult like this. A cult means hidden. It covers practices that are not approved by God. For example, astrology, casting spells, consulting with spirits, magic, sorcery, witchcraft, spiritualism. Those who practice the occult open themselves up to demonic activity, possession, and oppression. The occult. 
And these men in our text were trying to manipulate the demons by demonic power for their own advantage, their own good. And they ended up getting hurt literally because they were playing with powers greater than they realized. And many Christians and even some leaders in the church today dabble in the occult and sometimes without even realizing what they are doing. There's techniques of using visualization as a means of, of healing or receiving financial success. And that is a practice of the occult. Many of these teachers are usually promoting the occult when they tell you to visualize and speak into existence whatever you want. Speak it into existence. Visualize success. Assuring you that God will do what you speak in faith. Astrology, fortune telling, Ouija boards, tarot cards are directly demonic. And yet many Christians think of them as innocent games. Innocent games. So rather than attempting to use God for our own purposes, these Jewishes, as these Jewish exorcists did, we should follow the example of Paul. We should allow God to use us according to his purpose, for his will, for his glory. God, use us. Paul was not building a following for Paul. He was pointing people to Jesus Christ. That was his goal, is to point in all that I do, is make much of Jesus Christ. In fact, we, we read that the name of the Lord Jesus, not Paul, was, was lifted up, was extolled, was raised. And it also says in 19 verse 20, so the word of the Lord, not Paul's techniques for healing, continued to increase and might prevail mightily. Paul was willing to live or die as long as now, as always, Christ would be exalted in his body. I want Christ to be exalted. I want him to be lifted up in all that I do, in all that I say. I don't want you to see me. I want you to see Jesus. He's the one that matters, not me. In, in fact, Paul's experience, in Ephesus and in the lives of those who responded to the gospel, we see four different things of how God uses us for his glory. And here's the first one. For God to use us, we must be people of integrity. People of integrity and subject to his will. They were using spiritual power for financial gain. Paul, what did he do? He labored at a trade. He he built tents. He didn't have a mansion. I don't know if you, you've seen the, uh, the commercial or seen the YouTube of Preachers of L.A. coming out. Health and wealth. The homes. Driving in Bentleys. Homes that no one really can live in by themselves. You should call them hotels. But we've got the Apostle Paul laboring at the trade.
We need to be people who are full of integrity, subject to God's will. He even refused the right to receive income so that he would cause no hindrance to the gospel. These handkerchiefs that, that people carried from Paul to the sick were literally sweat cloths that he would tie around his forehead as he was laboring. Sweat cloths. So as sweat was dripping from his head, it wouldn't get into his eyes. The aprons were his work aprons. Can't you see Paul coming into his shop and saying, now where did I put that apron I, I wore last night when I took it off? Modern TV healers send out little squares of cloths that they have anointed, that they've anointed. And they ask their audiences to touch them as a, as a point of contact and, of course, to send your donation. I'm not sure that's how Paul had it worked out. These were his sweat claws as he was laboring in the gospel. His sweat, his work clothes. How different was it for Paul's ministry? These smelly rags were reminders of the toil that Paul was going through to make the gospel available in Ephesus. I am going to work my tail off here so that the gospel can spread. In comparing these clothes to Moses' rod, Ray Stedman, one of the, the commentators said this, there was nothing magical about Moses' rod itself. It was a symbol of something that God, about Moses, which God honored. A symbol about Moses, which God honored. So these sweatbands and trade aprons were symbols of an honest, dignified labor of the apostle. His labor of love and humility of heart. His servant character which manifested and released the power of God. God means to teach by this that it is through a man whose heart is so utterly committed that it is ready to invest hard, diligent labor in making the gospel available, willing to stoop to a lowly trade, a lowly trade so that the power of God is released. Even the demons recognize Paul's integrity. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. You? I have no clue who you are. Demons had no power over a man of integrity who is subject to God's will. Second way for God to use us is that we demonstrate our faith through repentance. For God to use us, we need to demonstrate our faith in him through repentance. Sounds kind of countercultural, right? We're, you want me to use you, well, how about if I give you a ton or if I do this for you? No, we need to be people of integrity, but we also need to demonstrate our faith through repentance. Here I'm focusing on the Ephesian people who, who had professed their faith in Christ, but they were not genuinely, genuine, genuinely repented until they heard of this incident. This was written to the church, and they're hearing about this, that this happened to the seven sons of Sceva, and God's power was going on there, and they were secretly holding 
sons of their old occult practices, weren't they? Just in case Jesus didn't work, I still got my old books. In case Jesus doesn't work, I'm going to go back to these old ways. But now they went public, confessing and disclosing their sinful practices. They confess that Jesus is Lord of my life. No longer is that true of me. For those who are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. I'm giving up those old ways and I'm now in Christ. I'm rooted in Him. That's where my identity is in. I, I no longer cling to that power that's over there, but I cling to the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection. Christ in me. So what did they do? As proof of their confession, they combined, they brought all their magical books and made a huge public bonfire. I thought about it. Should I send this sermon out? And, or maybe next week we should, we should have a public bonfire for us. The combined price of the books is huge. If the pieces of silver were drachmas, which is equal to one man's daily wage, at today's it would have amounted to about $5 million. Burned. Five, five million bucks. They could have sold them and financed a new sanctuary. Right? They could, man, that could have financed a lot of church plants. Just sell the books. Put them on eBay. Make some cash. I know there's no old day Jewish eBay, but finance a new sanctuary. But they didn't want anyone else contaminated by this spiritual deception, so they rightly burned them. Done with them. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Have you done that? Maybe it's not books on sorcery and magic. It could be filthy videos that are not edifying for you and that would keep others from God if you sold them. Whatever it is. Maybe it's magazines, maybe it's videos. Some of you, maybe it's even a computer. Whatever it is, true repentance requires us, requires us turning from sin, totally turning from sin and taking the necessary steps so that we do not go back again. We can confess our sin and say, man, I screwed up again. I dropped the ball. I've been watching this online and I've been saying these things. But we still go back, don't we? True repentance is turning our back and doing it means to sever that line so that we do not go back. That is true repentance. Placing our full faith in Jesus Christ that he is sufficient. He's all that I need. I'm cutting all those ties and I will never go back again. We stay away, as far away from those old sources of temptation as we can. And if we claim to be believers who hold on to our old sinful practices, God's power will be hindered in our lives. Period. Third way for God to use us is to seek to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. 
Paul didn't name the ministry after himself. It wasn't called the ApostlePaul.com. Come check me out. He didn't have big banners in his name. He didn't put his name on the marquee at Ephesus, the church of St. Paul. He didn't do that to advertise his, his nightly healing services. He didn't put his name out there. With John the Baptist, Paul lived by a simple, simple principle. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must become bigger in my life and in my world and all, all that I understand. He must increase, and I am going to decrease. Seeing God do these sorts of miracles through you or through your sweatbands could have been some really heady, mess up your life kind of stuff. But Paul never let it get to his head. Never, never let it get to his head. His aim was to exalt Jesus. And if God heals you or uses you to heal someone else, give God the glory. You didn't hear me say that miracles do not happen, did you? Because they do. And if God uses you for a miracle, it has nothing to do with you. Give God the glory. Give God the last way for God to use this. Seek to proclaim God's gospel. Paul could have decided that doing miracles drew bigger crowds, right? He could add a megachurch right there in Ephesus. Miracles bring bigger crowds than preaching the gospel and teaching God's word. But he wasn't convinced and he didn't do that. Rather, what happened? The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Verse, verse 20. Miracles do not always or, or even usually result in conversions. That's just a fact. Look at John 11. Look at Acts 4. The idol-making silversmiths in Ephesus had surely heard about these impressive miracles. They heard about it. But rather than getting saved, they worried that Paul's preaching and teaching would cut into their profits. And they started a riot. And we'll get into that next week, or in, in a couple weeks. Greed. And they didn't want to give it up. While sometimes God uses miracles to bring unbelievers to faith, that is not the general rule. The, the gospel, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. I cannot rely on miracles. I must rely on the gospel. That Jesus Christ, God made man, perfect God made man, lived the perfect life on this earth so that he can absorb the wrath of God for me. So that in his death and in his resurrection, I may have life. That I am no longer under the condemnation of God, but I am now alive in him. That is what saves people. Miracles. If God so chooses to use them, display his glory, show his power. But lives are not necessarily saved or 
converted. It is the gospel that must be proclaimed. God uses the foolishness of preaching to save souls. The foolishness of preaching. I love it. That's job security, right? And we should stay focused on God's word and the gospel. That's our focus. God's word and the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. Nothing else. So can God heal miraculously today? Our uniform answer is absolutely yes. God can miraculously heal today. He can transform. He can bring the dead to life. He can remove cancer completely from a body. He can provide you with a job miraculously in, on a Friday afternoon and provide it. And that's just, those are just amazing things. He does. But near, not nearly as often as those in the signs and wonders movement claim. My experience, miraculous healings and deliverance from demons are really very... And while God does at time heal supernaturally today, I believe that the, the gift of healing that we see here in Paul was limited to his apostles, to Paul and his, his close associates. If God chooses in his will to heal someone through prayer or deliver us from demonic power, we should be available. We should be available for him to do it. Our availability. But we must try to use such powers for his glory, for his fame, we must not be lords of our own lives. We must be people of integrity who live in daily repentance and humility. Daily. Who seek to magnify the name of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and the gospel in all that we do and all that we say. We must be subject to God's word, to his will, which will include suffering as we'll get to later so rather than trying to use God we should let God use us amen, amen. let's pray